All right, take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 8, Acts 8. We finish up eight chapters here in uh, the next uh, week or two. And we've seen God's redemptive work through a variety of people. In fact, that's really been kind of a theme through the book of Acts. There are no racial, gender, national, religious, or cultural boundaries that are too far for the gospel to cross. We could say it this way, that that salvation is truly an egalitarian work. The second chapter of Acts is a story of how the Holy Spirit came upon various people uh, who were believers in Jesus Christ. It was a, a supernatural way that God could demonstrate that the church was beginning. And the passage says in Acts 2.5 that there were devout men, and that when they said men, it, men were ahead of the household, so it, it included women and and children as well, but it says there were devout men from every nation under heaven. Uh, The early church worked out this unity by ministering to one another, giving to one another, praising God together, ministering with others in the community, and later in chapter 2, it says that they found favor with all the people. Uh, Now, the persecution of the church started immediately. First, it started with pressure from religious and, and, and government authorities. It got elevated to people getting thrown in jail and eventually led to people being killed because of they were, they were naming Christ and proclaiming Christ. Yet the church was not deterred. They continued to work out their salvation with fear and trembling and, and worked out this creed of, of one faith one Lord, and one baptism. And when foreign Christian women were being neglected, they put together a cadre of of men that could help to meet the needs of those foreign women that had come to Jerusalem. You might remember that they had thousands of people that had come from surrounding areas to celebrate the Jewish festivals. And many of these people came to Christ and were a burden to the early church because they didn't know what to do with all these people and they didn't even know how to feed them and some of the widows weren't, had, their needs were not being met. And so they put together these, uh, these deacons, you might call them, who were helping out. And one of those guys was Philip, not an apostle, but one who was just called upon to serve. Now when the persecution uh, intensified, people, the believers began to leave Jerusalem and they scattered in what was called the diaspora, or the dispersion of Jewish believers. These people were now in a position to spread the gospel in surrounding areas, and God was actually using the persecution as a way to obey the mandate of Acts 1.8, which says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I mean, the the audacity and radical nature of this mandate was in the face of of Jewish prejudice that held a disdain for Gentiles and a a, a disdain for even non-Israeli Jews, foreign Jews, and especially the Samaritans. The Samaritans were kind of half-breed. They looked upon them as pagan worshipers. And yet God was saying to the church, All of these people are welcome through the gospel into my family. 
and he was baptizing them with the Holy Spirit into one body. Now, since Israel failed to act as God's emissary, God's missionaries to foreign people, God was grafting in his church to communicate and spread the good news of his grace. Now, we've talked about what it means to be baptized in the Spirit before. We did a a message called the Samaritan Pentecost that talked about this in detail. You can look on our podcast and get that. It's a sovereign work. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a sovereign work of God to include people into the body of Christ, especially those who previously were considered outcasts. So God baptizes people as a way of identifying or expressing this oneness, this unity in the body of Christ. And that is exactly what is explicitly pointed out in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where it says, in the same way all of us, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, have been baptized into the one body by the same spirit, and we've all been given the one spirit to drink. Notice, all the diversity, Jews, Greeks, Gentiles, slaves free, and then the unity. One body, one spirit. Uh, We see this later in, in Acts 11, when Peter was recounting the baptism of the Holy Spirit given to Cornelius. And this was used as a sign from God that the Gentiles also were being accepted as full members into the body of Christ. You always have that idea attached to the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts. This idea of all believing people regardless of background or color, being a part of the body of Christ, that is kind of like a a main artery that flows through Acts. And we see that especially pronounced with our passage today in Acts 8, 25 through 40. And we're going to just touch upon it today, finish it up, in the um, proceeding week. So let's all, let's all stand as we look at this. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say uh, this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth 
And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Father, what a glorious story this is, and thank you for allowing us to have your spirit take this story and now apply it to our lives. And so, Lord, I ask that there would be indeed transformation that would take place, that there would not just be reading and instruction, but there would be application change, attitudes, behavior, our hearts, our perspective. We lay it all before you. We give your spirit carte blanche. Do whatever you want with us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. I want us to notice that God is leading Philip, that God is orchestrating this work. An angel speaks to Philip. He tells him where he wants to go. Now we know that angels have never experienced salvation. Hebrews tells us this. Therefore, they can never bear witness to what it means to come to faith in Christ, to have the, have the grace of God wash over us. But angels intervening like this reminds us that the gospel does not progress without God initiating the work, without God empowering the work. Both of those have to take place. Now, verse 25 tells us that Philip was already on the go and that God simply redirected him. They were already preaching in a populated area. And so we might say this, that that guidance is more difficult when we're stopped on dead center or our gear shift is set in reverse. When we are serving, we are moving and we can be directed. It's actually a lot more difficult to steer a parked car than one that is running. Whenever the Bible gives us details like the geography here and the people, there's always a backstory, and there is here in this passage. It's packed full with details that, that Luke decides to include in this story, and so we really need to, to dig deep and figure out why, why are these details here. First of all, we know that ancient Gaza was destroyed in 93 B.C. And the city was rebuilt just a a few miles away from the Mediterranean in 57 B.C. The old city was called Desert Gaza. 
And even though it was a port city, access was through a desert. God is asking Philip to go from a crowded area where he was comfortable, where they were having success with the gospel, where it was well populated, and I want you now on a desert road. I want you to go to desert Gaza. Now, we also know that there were few travelers during the the noonday heat in the desert. Why would God ask him to go from a populated area to a desert road? Maybe sometimes God calls us to the little things to do his work, or what seems like a little thing. But it's no less important. We have to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. We have to be sensitive to what God may be trying to whisper to us. We have to have a willing heart. We have to be moving with obedience. And then I think we can sense God's direction. So God had Philip leave this populated area to speak to one man on a desert road. The kingdom of God advances one soul at a time. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to believe and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody? Have you? Anybody? Then look at your feet and say, I've got beautiful feet, all right? Perhaps God has you in a situation where it seems like small things or nothing is being accomplished. Perhaps you are presently seeing little fruit. We do know that God has called us to not be comfortable. He's called us to be faithful. He's called us to obedience. Amen? The Spirit of God always moves in accordance to the will and the Word of God. So we can never claim that, well, the Spirit of God is leading me when it's contrary to Scripture, whether it's, you know, keeping a grudge, negating a vow, or causing division. When obedience is hard, and God has you on a desert road, remember, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are, my, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. I love that there's no protest from Philip. It says, he arose and went. It was, it was hey God, look at all these people. I've got all this success. Why would you move me? Maybe God has been speaking to your heart about something. 
Maybe the Holy Spirit has been whispering and, and you've been ignoring. Have you been putting off something that God has been just tapping at your heart and saying, hey, this is something I really want you to do, a place I really want you to go, a person I really want you to share with, or rise and go. We're given several facts about Philip, uh, Philip's future traveling partner, I should say. He's an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official, a CFO, returning from worship from Jerusalem, reading Isaiah, and every one of these facts are important to our story. Now, normally we think of Ethiopia as a little country in Africa, but in the first century, it referred to all of Africa south of Egypt. So we are talking about a massive territory. Ethiopia was called the end of the earth by the Greeks and the Romans. Now think of this. So by Acts 8, we've already had a fulfillment of Acts 1.8 that said, be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now we know that Ethiopians were dark-skinned. We know that they typically worshipped a sun god and that their kings were viewed as incarnations of that God. Now, there's little evidence of specific racial prejudice toward the Ethiopians, but considering the Jewish prejudice of foreigners, we could probably include them in the mix as well as others. Even though they were friendly to Judaism, they were not natural-born Israelites. Now, a eunuch, for those who need an explanation, is a male who has no testicles, whether due to a birth defect or intentional removal. All men are presently cringing. In the ancient world, slaves were often castrated as boys in order to be used as keepers of the harem of the treasury. They could be trusted not to have sexual relations with the royal family. And so they were trustworthy and loyal. So widespread was their service to the treasury that the term eunuch basically became synonymous with treasurer. For our CCC treasurer, just remember that. Eunuch is synonymous with treasurer, okay? Now, we know that that's probably not the case here, that it actually refers both to a physical eunuch and a treasurer because both are used in this passage. And so we can say the Ethiopian was a eunuch by physical characteristics, and he was an official over the treasury. Now, why is that physical status important to the story? Because even though he traveled to Jerusalem to worship, even though he had an obvious interest in Judaism, he could never be fully accepted into Judaism because of his physical condition. Eunuchs could visit the temple, but they could not enter. We read in Deuteronomy 23.1, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. The rabbis went so far as to state that a eunuch shouldn't even be considered a man. He was a second-class member of the religious community at best. 
And yet all that changed with the gospel. Where's God now saying, all are accepted on an equal basis. The kingdom of God was being composed of all classes, races, language, groups, nationalities. Candace is a general title that's given much like uh, we've heard the term pharaoh because there are different pharaohs, or, or czar, there are different czars, or Caesar, there are different Caesars. It doesn't mean one particular person. It's more of a, of, a, of a general title given to one who's administrating the kingdom. And in this place, it was a powerful queen who had the title of the Candace. So the eunuch served the queen by being the, the CFO, the chief financial officer of Ethiopia. That meant he was trusted, he was respected, it was an honored position. I think it's easy for us to maybe overlook people in such a position and realize that we cannot disqualify them from the gospel just because they might be rich or powerful. They need Christ just as much as anyone else. I think it's interesting that the Christian History Magazine notes that the this queen of Ethiopia at this time, the Candace, came to faith in Christ because of the testimony of the eunuch who returned from his trip and shared the gospel with her. And her conversion caused her to spread the gospel throughout Ethiopia. She and her husband reigned from 25 to 41 A.D. Our passage also says that the Ethiopian traveled all the way to Jerusalem to worship. Now, we don't know exactly where in the African territory of Ethiopia that this unit came from, but we know that it meant hundreds, if not over a thousand miles away to make that trip. So to make such a trip to Jerusalem meant that this person was seriously interested or devoted to Judaism. And yet this man was permanently put on the fringe of that religion, even though he had such great interest. And he's, he's reading from the book of Isaiah in his chariot. And by the way, if he's able to read while he's in the chariot and it's going, that means he had a driver. So again, he was a person of means, had riches, served royalty, he was religious, devoted, learned, worshiping. And yet, there is something missing. Doesn't that describe many people today? Religious, have a lot of things that the world can offer, but have yet to recognize their need of Christ. Have yet to exercise faith in Christ. Extremely sincere but still lost. They need someone to show them the way. They need someone to tell them they need people to share the gospel, and they need God to open up their hearts. See, salvation at its core is a sovereign work of God. All right? In this sense, I'm a committed Calvinist. God is the one who initiates faith in the human heart. How can a dead person help themselves? 
And everybody who's dead spiritually has nothing to contribute. They cannot respond without the initial work of God. It's why Jesus said, no one can come to me unless what? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. There is a total incapacity on the part of the unregenerate to see, to comprehend, to receive, to believe, unless the Holy Spirit works in that heart. So we see the Holy Spirit active throughout this whole scenario in all of these verses. First, inspiring the book of Isaiah to sending Philip in another direction to working in the heart of the eunuch to giving Philip the words to say and answering the question, and then finally in the faith of the eunuch. The Holy Spirit prepared all of this for this occasion, quickened his heart to believe. It's really an amazing thing. I was thinking of coming up with some kind of dramatic illustration of showing God's miraculous work in keeping some divine appointment. And then I realized, that really, the idea, I think, behind this is that God is behind every encounter of the gospel. The fact is, we don't need to be supernaturally transported to another location to have God working in us. We don't need to have an angel speak to us to know that God is sending us. All of us should be saying, here am I, what? Send me. Every time we share the gospel in love, that's a divine encounter. Especially when it's done one-on-one in a small way, in small things. I think of this good news club that CCC is starting. Listen, that is a divine opportunity, is it not? To be a mouthpiece to share with those who are most open to the gospel, children. To love them. And do you know what takes place in heaven when that happens? You have angels who look down as the gospel is being communicated and they are saying to one another, look, look at this. Get a load of what's happening here. Take a look at this. People responding. They look with amazement at that taking place. You cause a stir in heaven when you share the gospel. Global missions expert Paul Borthwick shared the following story to remind us of how God's mission is at any time, anywhere, with anyone. It was a young man, and I quote, a young man named Peter reminding me of a modern-day Philip. I stopped in to a McDonald's in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I noticed Peter working the counter. I recognized him from our young adult ministry at church, and I knew he had just graduated from Harvard University with a master's degree. I greeted him and managed to get him to break free for coffee together. What are you doing here, I asked knowing that Harvard's master's degree students don't usually aspire to work the counter at McDonald's. Well, he explained, I graduated in May, 
but I went four months without finding a job. So I said to myself, I need some income to pay bills. So this is where I've ended up, at least for now. I'm really sorry to hear that. It must be hard, I replied, but Peter quickly cut me off. He said, no, 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 don't be sorry. God has me here. This place is giving me awesome opportunities to share my faith. I'm on shift that includes a a Buddhist guy from Sri Lanka, a Muslim fellow from Lebanon, a Hindu lady from India, and a fellow Christian from El Salvador. It's awesome. I get to be a global missionary to my co-workers while asking, would you like fries with that? (laughs) He laughed, and so did I. Like Philip, Peter found himself in a setting he never would have chosen as part of his long-term plan, but his mindset of living as a sent person shaped the way he looked at his circumstances and at the people around him. My friends, we become participants in divine appointments when the gospel is shared with love. Every time. Now, if you're like me and you hear a sermon like this, you're probably thinking, all right, you know what, you're going to have to have a pile of tracts in my back pocket. You know, what is it you want short? Start carrying my family Bible out, make it obvious to everybody I'm a Christian. I mean, what is it you're asking us to do? Have you ever thought of maybe just praying and asking God to give you the opportunities? Just being sensitive and just in a normal, natural fashion. You know, you can have spiritual conversations. You can just ask people questions just like Philip did to the eunuch. Hey, do you understand what you're reading there? And he goes off to the races. And sometimes that's all it takes is one really good question. One really good, hey, did your family go to church? What, what do you think about God? I mean, it could be a variety of questions that you ask. And it opens up an opportunity to share. A divine encounter when we share in love. Let's pray.